My name is Daniel, and I'm a member here. I'm really excited to go ahead and bring the word of the Lord to you through Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth hear him and fear him. This is God's word for us today. Good. All right. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that you would use your word as we look to the Bible today, as we look to the Old Testament to get a vision for this world that we live in, <laughs> that we get to be a part of as we think back on the long, long history before us and we think ahead to what will transpire after us, God, would you give us today words, truths that we can build a life on, a, a life that makes sense of this big complicated world and a life that is used by you for the sake of your glory in this world, all of this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may not know this, but um, Redemption Church was actually planted by another church. The name is Grace Church in Racine, Wisconsin. And that's actually the church that I started to go to uh, shortly after coming to faith in Christ when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And uh, one of the first memories I recall from that time at Grace Church in about that age range, a freshman in high school or so, was for one of their missions Sundays. If you've been a part of a gospel preaching church, You've probably seen and been a part of one of these missions Sundays before. Um, there were flags, I remember, from different nations across the stage. We sang songs in all different languages that day, and there were these strange people called missionaries uh, that had tons of stories about their life and ministry in all of the world. But I have to say, um, again, I had just come to faith in Christ. I did not grow up in a gospel preaching church in this way. And so as I looked at all of this unfolding, I remember thinking, what in the world is this? Uh, can we go back to what church was like last week is, is what I thought. That made sense to me. I'm 14. I'm from Wisconsin. I just don't know what to do with this. It feels like some sort of a religious Olympics it feels like we're going to be putting people on stands and handing out medals for different... I just had no category for that at all. And basically the question that it left me uh, walking away with that day was this. It's why should we care about the nations? Why should we care? Uh, what does our spirituality uh, have to do? What, what does the life of our church have to do with all these people scattered all over the world. Now, by God's grace, he's done quite a bit in my life since then uh, to graciously show me 
uh, why we should care. Uh, and it's been, it's been quite a journey for me, to be perfectly honest. Uh, after college, I actually came back to Grace Church and joined the staff there. I, I went to seminary and was ordained at that church as a pastor and even oversaw the missions ministry, ironically, uh, before they sent uh, our family out here to plant this church. But listen, I will never forget that feeling. I will never forget that feeling, that Missions Sunday, as I sat in the pew and I thought, what in the world is this? I'm just convinced that many people have this question. Uh, there is a real disconnect for many between the life and ministry of our local church and then this cross-cultural work that missionaries are sent to do in the far-off, distant reaches of the world. Maybe you've wondered this. Maybe you've had these questions. Uh, why do churches do all this missions stuff? Increasingly, it's not really as much of an emphasis in many different churches. I think in some part because of this breakdown. But maybe you've wondered, uh, aren't there enough people for us to help here in our city? Uh, maybe you've wondered, uh, is this really the best way for us to use and spend our money as a church? Maybe you've wondered, am I really getting another support letter? For another short-term mission trip. What do I do with this, right? The goal here of this series is to help us to connect some of these dots. Is to help us to see the part that we do play in taking the gospel to the nations. And that how, according to scripture, it really is an important part of our mission together as a local church. Uh, in these next four weeks, I hope that we will see really the theology, the, the biblical truths that motivate us to go to the nations. Now, most of the time at Redemption Church, our preaching is, is a category that's called expository. And what that means is we open up a book of the Bible and then one passage after another, we work our way through that book to see what the author meant, uh, what it means for us today, and how it, how it should shape us, basically. We just did that in Jonah. Before that was 1st through 3rd John. Uh, this series is going to work a little bit differently. This is not an expository series. Occasionally, we will take a break from expository preaching to do things like this. And ultimately, I think it's because there are some biblical ideas that are actually clearer and we're able to, to, to communicate them a little better when we zoom out to consider what all of the Bible has to say on a given topic, rather than just trying to draw it out from one passage at a time. In this case, again, our focus is missions, plenty of different perspectives out there about what missions is and what it's all about. And, and so, uh, again, I hope that this series helps to clarify that just to get it off the, the table, on the table, or rather, right away. When I say missions, what I am referring to is the conventional understanding of cross-cultural work, where, where someone is sent from a church to a place in the world that has very few Christians and very few churches in order to see the gospel proclaimed, in order to see disciples made, in order to see churches multiplied. That's specifically what I'm referring to here in missions. And I, and I think and I hope that over the course of the next four weeks, you'll begin to see why, why we define it that way, why it looks that way. And so today, we are going to focus mostly on the Old Testament. We're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament. We're going to consider this question, why should we care about the nations? We're going to see in particular where the nations came from, why the nations rage, and who the nations belong to. Again, where the nations came from, why the nations rage, and who the nations belong to. We'll start with uh, where the nations came from. So 
Before we get to the actual Old Testament, first, I want to just do a little bit of defining our terms. What, I, what do I mean by the nations in particular? Uh, there are a number of Old Testament words that end up getting translated into the nations in English, but the most prominent word in Hebrew that is translated nations is actually the word ethnos. And it's the same word where we get our English word for ethnicity. There's a biblical scholar, um, A.J. Kostenberger. Uh, he says it this way in his article on the nations. He says, ancient perceptions of nationhood were largely a function of the following factors. In other words, here's what made nations nations in the time of the Bible. These are the things they shared in common. Ethnicity and language, territory, the land they lived, religion, kingship, and history. So, so in the Old Testament, this is what nations were. Now, it's important to note that because it's not necessarily the same as what we think of today with the modern notion of a geopolitical nation, like the United Nations, for instance. Because these days, uh, most nations are made up of many different ethnos, many different people groups, if you will. And in some ways, that's actually a new development in the history of the world. It's a new development in the unfolding work of God's redemption, even. And we're going to see there are huge implications for this uh, because most nations don't really even just share one ethnicity, religion, or even language. And it's important to note that. It's important to make that qualification. And here's why. Because our goal is not to see governments redeemed by the gospel. That's not the goal. Our goal is to see individual people, namely all of them, all people and their various ethnic groups redeemed by the gospel. Now, throughout the history of the church, many Christians for many eras even have gotten that entirely wrong. They have conflated the mission of the church with the mission of their government. This is why in some ways the separation of church and state in the, in the, in the modern West is actually such an incredible, again, innovation it's a new development, again, very new in the history of the world with huge implications for the mission of God. But to better understand this Old Testament concept of a people group, a nation, I want to ask this question, where did they come from? Where did these nations come from according to the Bible? And to do that, I just want to do a brief survey of Genesis 1 to 11, just a refresher for us. In Genesis 1 to 3, we see that God creates all things and he puts the first two people, Adam and Eve, at the very pinnacle of creation. He tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. And he uses this really interesting language. He says to have dominion over the creation. That word dominion is very much related to kingdom. Think of the domain of a king, the dominion of a king. This is about people ruling and reigning on God's behalf in his creation. And so if you take that principle of these two people just multiplying and filling the earth and having dominion, what would play out if that just went to its natural conclusion? What would have happened if Adam and Eve would have done that apart from any sin? They would have had a lot of children who had a lot of children. The earth would be filled with many, many different families. And these families would be working together to have dominion to rule and to reign over the earth on God's behalf. And this is what I love to call God's grand vision. From the very beginning of the Bible, this is what he is after. A world filled of sinless, image-bearing people reflecting his glory. That's what he wants. That's what we're driving for in the story of Scripture. Of course, sin corrupts this plan. It goes off the rails. 
And so Adam and Eve do multiply. But as they multiply, their sin is multiplied as well. We see this unfold in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. Everything goes so off the rails that God has to send a flood of judgment to, to start from scratch. But he preserves one family. Then in Genesis 10, after the flood, we see something really interesting. They start counting people again. There's a genealogy, a list of names. All the people descended from this family that was preserved on a boat, and therefore all the people descended from those very first two original people. And what we see here is that the point is that all of the nations on the earth were descended from these very first two people that God has made. And so in that genealogy, we even see names surfacing and picture little kids running around in this family tree named Egypt, <laughs> named Canaan. And we're reading this, and if you continue to read the Bible, you'll come to find actually those go on to be very prominent nations and figures of the Old Testament. It's very interesting. And then in Genesis chapter 11, the ent this entire diversity of the human race gathers together in unity. They are united, but they are not united in worship to God. Because of their sin, they're united in opposition to God. They try to build a tower to God to ascend to his divine heights. And in response, in judgment, God does two really important things. He confuses their languages so they, cannot no, they can no longer share one language, which is part of what makes a nation in the Old Testament. And he scatters them so that they no longer share a land either. So he confuses their language and he scatters them. And this is the Bible's answer to why the world is the way that it is today. Why it is filled with countless different ethnic people groups who constantly throughout all of history have been fighting for their own interests and power rather than working together to glorify the God who has made them. And so we can see this tension between where the nations came from, uh, what they were meant to, to be about, and, and kind of where we've ended up, where it's all wound up. Clearly something has gone wrong because the nations came from God. They were meant for his glory, but that's not how it works right now, right? Uh, for many reasons uh, and in many ways, they are raging against one another. This is the Bible's answer to where the nations come from. And now what I want to consider next is why the nations rage. Why does it work that way? Let's look at what the New Old Testament rather has to say about that. It's really interesting as the story continues and develops in Genesis 12, God addresses one man named Abraham and he tells Abraham that he is going to multiply his descendants and turn them into a great nation and it's through whom this nation through whom he will bless all of the other nations of the earth. It's as if God looks down on this earth filled with sinful nations that are raging against one another. He looks down on all of it from heaven and he says, you know what? I want one of those for myself. I'm going to raise up a people group. And it's through that people group I'm going re to redeem all of these other people groups. Look with me at Genesis 12. This is what it says. Now the Lord said to Abraham... Go from your country and your kindred to, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this is the key, in you, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise is what sets the rest of the Old Testament in motion. If we do not understand, church, these three verses in the Old Testament, we will never be able to make sense 
of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, is the entire story, is the story of God rescuing and redeeming all the nations of the earth somehow through this one nation, Israel. So in the Old Testament, when we hear this phrase, the nations, what that means is all of the other ethnos, all the other people groups of the world other than Israel. And to illustrate this, I want us to look together at Psalm 2. Uh, Carl actually preached this for us last year. He did a great job. You may recollect it. Um, But this is a corporate prayer for the nation of Israel. But it's specifically about why all the other nations of the earth rage. And I want you to notice why that is according to this prayer. Look at Psalm 2 with me. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves or, or establish themselves and the rulers take counsel together. It says, against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, the reason the nations rage is because they have set themselves against the God who made them. They have forgotten, if you will, where they came from. They, they do not worship the one true God. They are all, it's almost as if they're trying to be him. They're trying to replace him. This is the Bible's explanation for all of the brokenness in our world. This is why the nations rage. Because again, the nations who were made in in the image of this God and, and for the glory of this God have turned from this God and they've set themselves against him. And, and they've done this in such a way that it also has, they've set themselves against one another. This has also corrupted our relationships with each other. And therefore, the nations aren't even willing any longer to pursue this grand vision of God. Because each of them now has their own vision of how this earth should be filled with their glory. But the problem with that is that there are thousands of these nations. And they all think in the same way. And so as lost and as broken as this world may be, as lost and as dark as these nations may sound, it, it may be tempting to think, well, this is a lost cause. This is just off the road. This is, there's nothing we can do about this. And yet, throughout Scripture, God refuses to give up on the nations. He remains faithful to this plan, to this promise even, to redeem the nations through his nation. And ultimately, that is because, we're going to see in part three, that is because of who the nations belong to. Who the nations belong to. So we can already see this tension unfolding in the Old Testament because on one hand, God had one nation. This nation of Israel, they were his covenant people. They were called to be set apart. They were called to be holy. But on the other hand, he is also the source of every other nation. He is. Uh, and, and, And the point of him raising up Israel was to redeem all of those other nations. And so Israel often in the course of the Old Testament lost sight of this. And we saw a powerful example of that in the book of Jonah these last five weeks. Uh, We saw an Israelite, a Hebrew, who God sent to the nations, and he said, no, I'm not going. (laughs) I am not going. So we can see that tension there. But it's really interesting when you think about, in the Old Testament, Israel interacting with all these nations. Israel, I'm sorry, interacting with, rather, Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, right? On one hand, these are all Israel's arch enemies, kind of. And yet, in another sense, they're not, because even they, even these nations, 
belonged to the God of Israel. And so this is the point here, is that there really is no nation. There really is no person on the earth who belongs to some other God. Because the truth is, there is no other God. It's only this God. And he is the creator and ruler of all things. So we see this dynamic at play in Psalm 22. Again, this is another prayer for Israel, God's chosen nation. But again, it shows us how they viewed all of the other nations, at least at their very best, they viewed the other nations this way, when they're on their best behavior. Look with me at that, Psalm 22. It says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For it says, kingship belongs to the Lord. And it says, he rules over the nations. Right? That is, even now he does. Even as they rage against him, even as they rage against each other, even though these nations have turned from the Lord and forgotten him altogether, we can see here Israel longed for the day when they would remember and turn back to him. And ultimately, this is because they still belong to him. Even as they rage, even as they refuse to worship him, they still belong to our God. I just want to pause and ask, is this how we think of the world today? Is this how we think of the nations as precious image bearers created for God's glory, whose greatest potential is found in worshiping and delighting in our God? Is that how we think of the world as we watch the news, <laughs> as we read about what's happening in all the world? In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, the first missionary to the nations, um, finds himself taking the gospel beyond Judea. And he finds himself, in fact, in Athens, Greece. And he's, he's trying to preach to this crowd in Athens, Greece, and he's trying to gain a hearing with this crowd. But you have to keep in mind, he is not talking to Jews. He is not talking to people who were familiar with or invested in the Old Testament at all. These people did not really care, right? Because they're part of the nations. And here's what he said. I want you to notice what he said to gain a hearing with these um, Greek listeners. He says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, you may not know you belong to this God, uh, you may have forgotten that he is the source of, of your life. But friends, he still is. He still is. And you still belong to him. Whether you realize it or not, he's saying he does control the history of your nation, all of its affairs, everything. He is sovereign over it all. He is ruling and reigning even now. Paul is saying, friends of Athens, I am not here just to persuade you of some other God from some other region. That is not the point. I am here to reunite you with your maker. I am here to reunite you with the one true God who is the creator and the ruler of all things, including you. 
this is the basis of Paul's ministry to take the gospel to the nation's church. This is why we need a passion to take the gospel to the nations. But what I want to see is that we will never be able to make sense of any of this. We will never make sense of missions until we have understood this. That all nations belong to our God. All nations belong to our God. Missions is not just about doing a bunch of good things for Jesus. Uh, It is not about exporting our American culture and values to the world. It is about reconciling lost people with the glorious God who made them. It, It is about calling all people in all the world to worship the God that they belong to, whether they realize it or not. Now, if we don't understand this, you can see we will inevitably turn our Christianity into something that is merely cultural, into something that doesn't even make sense, frankly, apart from our country and apart from our culture. We will make our Christianity far smaller than the Christianity found in the Bible. But if we do understand this, if we do, it should radically change our entire worldview. It should leave us with a burden and a passion to see the nations remember and turn back to our God. To see all of God's image bearers whom he has made for his glory, whom belong to him. To see all of them have this opportunity to finally be redeemed and reconciled to God in Christ. This is what we see, I'm convinced, as we look at the Old Testament to consider why we should care about the nations. And what I want to do next is I just want to consider what does all of that mean for us today? In particular, I want to share three takeaways. The first one may surprise you a little bit, may seem like this is a curveball a bit, but it's really important, I think, actually. The first takeaway is this God has redeemed us from the nations. <laughs> God has redeemed us from the We have to understand this in order to make sense of this, but we, we often miss this, but I think it's crystal clear as we look at the Bible. Most, if not all of us, are part of the nations. Unless you are an ethnic Jew, unless you are a literal descendant of Abraham, you are part of the nations. In my case, uh, I'm mostly Italian. My ethnic heritage can be traced back probably roughly to to Rome. Uh, Of course, I also live in the United States of America as an an Italian-American. And so the point is the, the gospel had to go out far beyond Judea to the nations in order to reach me. <laughs> I imagine that is the case probably for all of us, if not certainly all of us. But the, but the point is this. We may live in the United States. The gospel does not. Uh, the gospel did not begin here. Uh, the gospel uh, does not live here. Right? Christianity is not first and foremost an American thing at all. Uh, It it long predates America, and unless the Lord comes back soon, I'm I'm convinced it will long outlast America. Everything we've read about today, we have to understand, happened on the other side of the planet. Our our faith is based in 2,000-year-old ancient Near Eastern texts. 
And the only reason we have Bibles to read and churches to join in America today is because people like the Apostle Paul, that first missionary, have devoted their lives to taking the gospel far beyond Israel to the nations. And the reason, church, that they did that is because they believed what we've talked about here deeply today. They believed that all nations belonged to their God. They believe that this gospel of Jesus Christ is, in fact, God's solution to redeem and to restore all nations. That is the theology that motivated the entire story of the Old New Testament, motivated the early life of the church. But I'm, I'm not particularly convinced that it is still that much of a motivation for us in many ways. Often is not so much the case these days. But what I want us to see is the real irony here. In believing the gospel for ourselves, oh yeah, absolutely, I'm going to come to church, we'll preach the gospel, I'm all about that, I'll even tell my neighbor. I want us to see the irony in believing the gospel for ourselves and then having no passion to reach the nations. Do, do you see the irony of that? Because we are the nations. And so we need, church, to see our place in this centuries-old, still-unfolding plan of redemption. We need to be very careful that we not reduce our Christianity to something that is only American or even only Western or even only concerned with the affairs of today. Right? The, the truth is, church, we need to know our Old Testament in order to make sense of our news feeds. You see that? It's true. Because if we don't have a biblical worldview that is shaped by this story of Scripture, we will never share God's heart for God's nations. We just won't. And that's what I want us to see next. We need to share God's heart for God's nations. We need to share it. See, if there's one point in this sermon that I'm, I'm convinced most everyone will agree with, it's that the nations rage. Right? It's hard to deny that. Oh, boy, do they ever rage. You just turn on the news Log on to the internet. Gaza and Israel are lobbing missiles at each other. Again, the, the Communist Party of China is committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslim people groups, even according to the UN's definition of genocide. The police treatment of minority people groups is still in the news here. People are still protesting about it. People are fired up about immigration. Our vice president just went to the border this week. People are fired up about how to handle this. What it means, right? you cannot deny this. It's just a fact of history. The nations rage. That's true. It's true. But I'm a bit concerned that our very cynical views of this world are leading many Christians to an unbiblical worldview that has basically just defined the nations out of their faith. Uh, it basically has no category even for the nations Anymore, Our gaze is shifting downward, lower and lower, away from the glory of God in all creation, away from that kingdom, away from his dominion in all the world to basically just winning a culture war here and, and now in our day for our group, right? Ah, we get so fired up about us. As we look at our modern world, too often we only see evidence of, the, of its sin and corruption, which certainly there is plenty of that, but we no longer see this story of God unfolding. 
as he uses us, his church, to redeem the nations. Whether it's because we just haven't seen these things in the scriptures or, or because we don't want to see these things for any number of reasons, it doesn't really matter, but the effect is the same. We don't share often, too often, we don't share God's heart for the nations. We are, in that sense, somewhat like Jonah, uh, who loved that salvation belonged to the God as long as he needed it, right? But as soon as God called him to a higher vision, as soon as God lifted his gaze to the world beyond his world, to the nations, what did he do? He was grumpy. No, he was grumpy. He said, no, I'm not doing it. I refuse. I don't care. I just want to consider uh, many of the new developments of our modern world that many Christians often just see as a threat to our American Christian ideals. For instance, uh, digital communication in the Internet. It has created all kinds of confusion and chaos in the modern world. It's hard to deny. But as the world is increasingly connected and communication across the globe becomes cheap and easy for everyone, you have to see here, connect these dots, there are countless implications for sharing the gospel, for, for training pastors, for multiplying local churches, partnering with missionaries in all the world. I want you to imagine the Apostle Paul who spent many months and met much blood, sweat, and tears in shipwrecks being beaten and thrown in prison to get to churches so he could address them and, and pastor them. I want you to envision him sitting down on a Zoom call. Just imagine his mind would have blown, right? You, you mean we're in Rome they're in Corinth, and we can, we can just talk? This changes everything, he would say, right? Do we see that potential in the modern world today for the sake of God's glory among the nations? Uh, global transportation, airplanes, pose many threats in our world today, many uh, dangers in our world. They've increased the threat of terrorism. Um, they have made it so that infectious diseases and pandemics can quickly become a worldwide phenomenon, right? The list goes on. But most of us can now afford, if not on our own, with just a little bit of support raising from our brothers and sisters, to get on a plane and be with, literally with, any number of unreached people groups in a matter of hours, at the very most a day or two. Meanwhile, missionaries like William Carey, who in the 18th century, not, not all that long ago in the sweep of history, was a missionary to India, he risked his entire life and spent months after months just to get to the people groups that he sensed God was calling him to reach. Immigration is a very hot topic in our culture today. And sure, it's hard to deny too many immigrants moving too quickly without any meaningful way of integrating them into the culture can have a destabilizing effect on the culture, even on the economy, on the school systems, everything. Yeah, sure, and yet it is as if the nations are coming to us, church, in a way that previous generations of the church could not even begin to imagine was possible. English is quickly becoming the universal international language of business. Some of you internationally travel for business. You fly to Asia. You grew up in southeastern Wisconsin. You learned English here. You fly to Asia for your job, and you're talking in detail with people of a different, totally different nation, and they completely understand you. You can even develop relationships with them. 
Do we see the potential in these things for the sake of God's glory in all the world? I think we need to look at these developments as complex and as messy as certainly they are. And we need to see, church, God at work. He's at work here so that what we read of earlier in Psalm 67 could come to fruition. So that his way will be known on the earth. His saving power among all nations. Do we have a heart for this? Do we long to be used by God to this end? And if not, I want us to ask today, why is that? What is the barrier? And I want to suggest or at least ask, could it be that we have not yet been convinced of this third and final point, which is oh so important? Number three, that our God deserves the praise of all nations. He deserves it. It's tempting to think that our God is only our God. The, the Christian God is only the God of Christians. It may be Jews in some way, but not everybody else, right? Um, as if he doesn't have any business infringing upon the lives of others or insisting that they would worship him. But the truth is, if we continue to think in this way, increasingly the Bible will make no sense to us <laughs> whatsoever. The truth is, this God we worship has every right to the praise of every person. He has every right. It is a tragedy that anyone made in his image would devote their lives to any other purpose. It's a tragedy unto God, but, but not even only unto God. It's a tragedy for that person made in his image to never delight in and worship him in the way they were made to. Until every knee bows, until every tongue confesses his glory, church, this world will never be right. This world will never be set right by any other means. It must happen by the gospel of Jesus Christ going out to the nations. That will only happen if those of us who believe it will take it there. This is why we cannot and we will not conflate our church's mission and purpose and identity with any one political party or even any one nation uh, for any reason. It's not because the issues of our day are unimportant uh, or because political engagement is altogether bad. It's not. It's not that we're trying to compromise in order to reach people and avoid the hard issues. That's not it. It's because more than being citizens of this nation, we are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom, which he is using to redeem all nations. Do you see that? If our concern for politics sets us at odds with the rest of the world, uh, let alone with our neighbors who vote differently than us, if it sets us at odds with them, church, we are missing the point. Uh, we can be certain, according to these scriptures, God is not chiefly advancing his redemptive plan through governments, <laughs> through geopolitical nations anymore. He is now at work in and through his church, which he has sent into all the world to make disciples of all nations. There are many dangerous traps here, 
that we need to avoid in politics, particularly as our culture increasingly becomes hostile to what we believe. It's very tempting to cling to political power, to try and fight back, to keep it the way that it was. And so it doesn't get less comfortable for us here. But when we use our politics as a spiritual litmus test, it does set us at odds with the very people God has called us to reach. It may also, in time, lead us to endorse all kinds of evil in the name of what? Of clinging to earthly power (laughs) when our God has clearly told us that his kingdom is not of this world. But church, most importantly, doing this will set our gaze far too low. Far too low on the affairs of this country today when the scriptures are screaming at us from every page, God deserves the praise of all nations forever. I think there's maybe one reason uh, why many kids who grow up in American Christian homes really start to wrestle with, maybe even lose their faith once they leave the home. And particularly, there's a theme here, I've seen it all over the place, when they do world travel. They, they go around the world and they lose their faith. <laughs> There's a pattern there, and it's because they see that the world doesn't actually work the way they've kind of come to think that it might. Not everyone believes in the God of the Bible. They don't know what to do with that. Many people don't even believe in any God. And it never really dawns on them that the Bible has given us actually a very compelling reason for this, not to mention the the most compelling solution to it as well. They begin to feel, though, that the gospel is just an American thing. And if they were to share the gospel with these people of these nations, that would be imposing upon them. Because the gospel, often that we are told uh, as, as, as young kids in the life of many churches, does, does not really transcend our culture at all. It was mostly about uh, being good, doing the right stuff, uh, and praying that right prayer so we could feel good about going to heaven someday. Never really shaped our worldview never really helped us to make sense of all of life. We never really learned that this is a big and lost world. The Bible tells us it is. It tells us why that it is. But everyone in this world belongs to the God of this Bible. Church, we need to teach our kids, parents, we need to teach our kids a gospel that makes their affections for God soar far beyond the borders of this country and its culture. And church, we need that gospel. We need our affections to soar in that same way. We need to long for all people to praise our God because most importantly, this is one of, quite simply, the most important implications of the gospel. It really is. This idea of God redeeming the nations into his covenant family by the death and resurrection of Jesus, that idea, church, is on virtually every page of the New Testament. Every page It is the reason Christ ascended to heaven to be seated on the throne. Why? So that he could rule over all nations. It is the reason for the Jew and Gentile divide in the New Testament, in the life of the early church, as the nations begin pouring into this covenant family of God for the very first time. It is the reason that Jesus has sent us the Spirit to empower us as we go to the nations to be his witnesses in all the world. And it is also, church, the great ending of the story. In the book of Revelation, where we see a great multitude from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue crying out together to God in eternal 
praise. What we see in that multitude in the book of Revelation is God's grand vision from Genesis 1 in the very beginning of the story. We see a redeemed humanity bearing and reflecting God's image together in love by the power of the gospel. What we see is that this will happen. (laughs) This is going to work. And so what if this vision was the one that drove us in our daily lives? What if this vision is the one that drove us in everything that we do as a church? This vision for the glory of God to fill the earth through his redeemed image bearers from among all nations. This should be the vision that compels us in all that we do. Because church, we can see this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing. From cover to cover, we can see this is his vision for his creation. And over the next three weeks, I want us to see more and more what that means and how we can be a part of that and go about it and why it all matters. But what I want us to see today, before we get going with all of that, I want us to see that we will never share his vision unless we are convinced that all nations belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and the incredible ways that it makes us to see the purpose and plan you have for your creation. God, we pray that when this purpose and this plan and and the extent and the power of the gospel begins to make us stretch and make us uncomfortable, expand our vision far beyond the horizons we're used to, God, we pray that by faith in Jesus, you would remind us of what you have told us in the Great Commission, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, that we are to go and to make disciples of all nations, God, and and most importantly, that we would remember Jesus' words here at the very end of the Great Commission that he said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. God, would you help us to see this vision? Would you remind us and comfort us that as terrifying as it is, as, as, as intimidating as it is, God, you are with us in it. And would you give us this great and beautiful sense that all glory is due to you and your son, that he is risen, that his heart is beating, that he is seated on the throne of heaven where he rules and reigns over all. Give us a heart for the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.